0: Quote a home and car bundle today at progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12 month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hi, I'm Debbie Melman. Canva is
1: great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. So join Wix's brilliant community of designers, artists, and creatives at large around the world for free and ask yourself, what will you create today?
2: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 14 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Nick Law about working through failure. In some ways, you've got to think
3: of your work as a portfolio of experiments. Some of the high-risk ones will not work, but you'll learn from them. Here's Debbie Millman.
1: These are just a few of the things I recently learned about Nick Law. He falls asleep in seconds. He doesn't mince words. He met his wife in a bookstore. And she thinks he's fair honest and funny. He's a father of four and, as a result, has an amazing capacity to handle pressure. He has a way with typography and doesn't need or seek praise or approval. His favorite meal out is breakfast, and when he wants something, he makes it happen. That makes sense given his extraordinary career. For the last 17 years, he's been at RGA where he has been leading the firm's strategic and creative vision as the vice chairman and chief creative officer. His clients have included Nike, Beats by Dre, Samsung, HBO, Johnson & Johnson, IBM, and Google. During his tenure, RGA has become one of the most awarded and admired agencies in the world, winning every major creative accolade possible. He's here today to talk with me about his remarkable career and the big changes he has on the horizon. Nick Law, welcome to Design Matters.
3: Thank you very much.
1: Nick, I understand you love musicals and you love taking your children <laughs> to shows. What are some of your favorite? You wouldn't have been the type that I would have pegged as a musical man. Yeah. Well,
3: yeah, I I enjoy going to entertainment with my kids.
1: What was the last show you brought them to? I think
3: I, I took the younger ones to Into the Woods. Oh, nice. Yeah. Probably the favorite one was Mary Poppins because we went backstage and met met Mary Poppins. That's wonderful. Mm. I I
1: actually saw that show as well. I took my nephew when we went back and saw The Chimney Sweeper. Not Mary, but The Chimney (laughs) Uh, Sweeper. Oh, well,
3: you know, you have to learn your way to Mary.
1: (laughs) You said that as you were growing up in Sydney, Australia, you were good at two things. Rugby, which was your obsession, and drawing. Mm -hmm. So tell us about the comics you created back then.
3: Wow, you've done some research. <laughs> I, I, yeah, um, I drew a lot, and and I and I, I read comics, but mostly I created comics. Um, and you know, I had a cast of of characters that, uh, you know, uh, followed the classic, you know, origin stories of superheroes, and you know, people like Volcano Man, who's you know had lava shoot out of his out of his hands, Turbulence, who could create you know strong wind. You know, not, sounds a little bit like X
1: Men, a little bit, Yeah, like a little bit, a little <laughs> yeah.
3: Bit. you know, and 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 then you know, you had your villains like yeah, you, know, you know, the the Captain Terrors and all that sort of thing. So, and I, I created these elaborate stories that had multiple issues over time, and uh, I don't know where they are now. I should try to find them.
1: Now, I understand that you also used to dress up as your comic characters.
3: Oh yeah, well, actually, I, I was very enthusiastic about the band Kiss when I was you know, in my early teens. Weren't we all? And, uh, and you know, and as you know, they, they dressed up in elaborate costume. And so, you know, I created a pretend band and uh, with, with, again, invented characters uh, that included uh, fashioning uh, a costume for myself, yeah.
1: And your brother caught you.
3: That's right, yeah. I was standing in front of the mirror of my bedroom, admiring my handiwork, imagining <laughs> myself as this member of, of this band and my brother. I just heard through the keyhole of, of my door. You fucking freak. And, uh, yeah, so there, there you have it. (laughs) Did
1: that, did that prevent you from furthering your career as a, as a costume designer, do you think?
3: Yeah, I think so. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Now you described your childhood as feral. Mm -hmm. In what way was it feral?
3: Well, not a lot of supervision. And I was lucky enough to grow up in a beach suburb in North of Sydney so you didn't really need a lot of supervision, to be honest. Um, so I spent a lot of time at the beach. Single mum, she was a nurse, and so she worked hard and was often in the city, which was about an hour and a half away, and would stay overnight because she had shifts and stuff. And so we would basically the three boys look after ourselves. Which, you know, looking back, I never thought anything of it at the time. But if you look at how, how people parent now, it was sort of extraordinary.
1: But you were also rather shy. Is that correct?
3: You're cripplingly shy. Yeah.
1: How did you get over it?
3: Well, I, th- I had rugby, didn't I? You know, there's nothing that'll beat shyness than uh, a violent sport, uh, and so my, my confidence grew through mostly playing rugby. I did athletics. I did all sorts of things. So you know, that, that it, it's one of those rare moments where I believe in a Victorian value, which is this sort of this Tom Brown muscular Christianity idea of character building. You know. Through suffering, yeah, and and you know, and through you know, confronting your fear and all that sort of stuff, yeah.
1: But thinking that getting your head knocked around on a rugby field didn't seem like a sustainable career to you. So I read that you went to visit a friend's father who was a commercial artist, and he explained what he did. Um, what did he tell you? What did you think at the time?
3: Well, yeah, I mean, in the absence of any real career advice from parents or teachers, I had this friend uh, whose father was what was called then a commercial artist and I knew I could draw and so I thought well if maybe that's what I should do and uh and he took me into his office which was in the city and just showed me some logos that he had done I thought that seems like fun and, uh, and he advised that I apply for a technical college called Ramwick Tech uh, which was right next to the biggest race course in Sydney. Luckily for me, the application didn't involve any sort of any academic grades from school. It was all practical tests. Did you do poorly in school? Yeah, I was probably the most average student in the history of Pittwater High School. Yeah.
1: So you didn't pursue a formal education or go to college?
3: No, that's right. Yeah, it was a technical college that housed uh, students that were learning hairdressing and plumbing and... And graphic design, you know, which was just craft that involved a T-square and a drafting table back then. Back so then, it was, yeah. yeah, it was a true sort of practical course. There was no theory.
1: Knowing what you know now, would you recommend that people that want to go into design or advertising go and get a formal education?
3: No, not really. I mean, I, I think that the it, design is a craft. I know that it's fashionable to talk about design thinking and, but I, I mean, I started learning the tools of the craft as soon as I left high school, which so I was 18, and I was in the industry by the time I was 20, and that's when I started to learn. So
1: I believe that your first gig as a working designer was as the only employee to a man in Sydney named Anthony Ginz. Ginz, yeah. Oh, my
3: God, how did you find this out?
1: And you've described him as an obsessive craftsman, mad as a cut snake and there was an expletive in there which i took out and bonkers so yeah. what kind of work did you do for this bonkers obsessive craftsman who was mad as a cut snake it was
3: mostly corporate identity he had come out of a design agency called lundia that was probably most famous for doing the quantus identity system but he was a very erratic uh, strange man what made and him
1: so bonkers
3: he, I mean, he had a crazy temper and, and you know, he sort of disappeared from my life after I'd left and and gone to London and come back when I think the police sort of chased him out of town. So, he, you know, I think he, was, he probably had some sort of strange pathology.
1: I understand that he was a rather hard man to please and you would have to build comps old school style mm-hmm. by cutting acetate and yeah, using right. rub downs, but you loved it. Do you still do a lot of work with your hands?
3: No, not as much as I probably should i mean i think it would be a nice contrast to to work which is you know mostly screen-based and you know all managing uh but i was very particular i mean there was there was a time when an, a useful skill for a young designer was doing layouts and and paste up that's how i got yeah. my
1: start that's the only thing i knew yeah. how to do
3: and and said you know marking up type and doing all that sort of thing and i i was uh you know I'm, people would say it's because i'm a virgo uh, but I am very particular when it comes to that sort of thing and so I enjoyed it uh, I like doing things like that because they're therapeutic in a way it's also what makes design the practitioners that, that stay late What well, you know because copywriters have got 26 characters they range and and there's usually a pretty good sort of uh, version of it after you've been working it but you can work at design forever and and I was that sort of person where you know the one thing that I remember from all the places that I've worked from Sydney to Europe you know to the states is the sound of a trash truck pulling up outside while I'm still working at 3am
1: With that coffee next to you that's cold. Yeah, that's right. Back in the day when we smoked a couple of (laughs) butts in a dirty ashtray nearby. Yeah. The days, those wonderful days. The romance. (laughs) Now, I think from there, you went to Pentagram in London Mm -hmm. and worked with uh, the legendary Alan Fletcher and John McConnell. That's right. Who I recently saw. Um, Can you talk about that experience a bit? What were some of the biggest things you learned from Alan and from John and... Why you decided to leave. And, and wait, the other question is, so you're working for this bonkers guy. How did you go from a bonkers guy to Pentagram, which was at that time, certainly yeah. the agency, number one agency in the world?
3: Yeah. I mean, even though the gentleman I worked for in Sydney was crazy, I did learn a craft because he was very strict. And I had a portfolio that was very finished. Um, and I did what most Australians do at some point in the young lives, which is you get, in a, you get in a plane with a one-way ticket uh, and, you, and you go walk about. And so I went, I went through Southeast Asia and parts of Europe and landed in London, waited for my portfolio to arrive by ship, wow. uh, which took months. So I took a job cleaning dishes. And when it finally arrived, you know, the big plastic sleeved portfolio, I went around. I, the first job I got wasn't actually a pentagram. It was a small design agency. But then from there... I got an opportunity to work at pentagram and, and, and I, of course I knew about them and, and was really excited about working with them. And so I did that. And the thing I learned there is, is how to have a, a very consistent culture around the work and, and that there wasn't a big difference between the culture and the work. Like you can't have an agency or a, or a design company that has a culture that's, that's forced without uh, it being expressed in the work. If you do excellent work, like they did, and they were very proud of it, and the partners, you know, were slightly competitive, then that in, that created a sort of culture of excellence. Um, and it was also very, like a lot of design companies, as opposed to perhaps some of the agencies, the more marketing or advertising agencies. It's a very gentle culture also, even though people worked hard, very considerate. Uh, they fed you. Uh, you know, we all thought it was because they didn't want us to leave our desks, but they they still fed us. Uh, And the work was was beautiful. And you you ended up work, you know, I remember the first thing I worked on with with Alan was an identity for the Tokyo Council, you know, so that for someone coming from Sydney who had worked on local clients, be able to work on that sort of on global work like that was very interesting.
1: You also worked as a senior designer at Diefenbach Elkins, which is now Future Brand in Mm -hmm. New York. What did you think of the branding community when you first entered it? Was very Well, I loved of,
3: it because that's where I started. Yeah. Um, and I broadened that experience in more general graphic design in, in at Pentagram and then at a, at a few other places. I worked at DNB&B, which is an advertising agency. So I had a taste of sort of art direction and advertising. So uh, by the time I got to F- Diffenbach Elkins in New York, um, I think it was towards the end of the time when you could create an identity, put it in a three ring binder and give it to the world. Um, and the thing that I remember most was how how valued certain projects were because most projects you didn't actually get to execute the system. You helped, you'd you help design the system, but you didn't get So airlines was the thing that we wanted to work on because you'd get to paint the tail of a plane and do some livery and do stuff like that. And I think that at the time, if I look back, it was the beginning of that industry maybe losing a little bit of relevance from an executional point of view, because you went from a world that was very discrete, right, where you could hand over a three ring binder, and different disciplines would either adhere to it or not, to a world where everything was connected, and that you couldn't design an identity without understanding how it lives in the interface, how it lives, you know, uh, as verbal design, as gestural design. So there's like, it's, it'd be very difficult, I think, to operate like we did back then. Now, because the world is so connected, and because these, you know, we, we live in this a world that should operate like the Bauhaus, but it's still, there's still these sort of legacy uh, disciplines that prevent that.
1: Nick, you went from design to advertising to interactive work in different countries, and in doing so, you noted that you accidentally learned along the way. Mm-hmm. How did you move from discipline to discipline? with what seems to be fairly effortless fluidity.
3: Well, here's what, here's the good outcome of having a feral childhood is that um, I didn't wait for instruction and was very opportunistic. So that my initial design experience in London moved into advertising, not because I was desperate to work in advertising, but before an opportunity came up and I thought it was interesting I had to try something new. In the case of of then going from design to interactive. I was, in, I was in New York in the mid-90s when the web came along. And I could see that, even though it was a new medium, that at some point it would ingest everything. It just seemed obvious to me at the time. So I started to work on that. Initially, in a, in a way that a lot of designers did, which was like a graphic designer, sort of crafting pages and everything, but then to understand the dimensions of experience design. Uh, one of the ways I describe that is that you go from, in flat graphic design, uh, you ha- you just deal with the thing in front of you, whereas when you're designing interfaces, you deal in three tenses. You deal in, in, in the present, what's in front of me, what do you want me to do? In the past, what does this remind me of? What are the signals that I'm getting that suggest interaction? And the future, which is, what are the signals you've given me that suggest what I will get when I interact? And so it sort of exploded my design craft in a way that was intriguing in the same way that moving from design to advertising you went from thinking systematically to thinking in a more narrative fashion so in each case I followed a path that where I got to learn something new that was still related to what I was doing so I brought a craft and then expanded it and broadened it you got to remember that you know when I started to where I am now is when all of these things happened because the web changed everything, basically. And so I was lucky, in a sense, not just to have experienced all of these things, but to be there when when they were birthed and when they developed and matured.
1: Tell me about first meeting Bob Greenberg. How did that happen?
3: So I had been working at a startup based in Atlanta, a startup that, that had the curious name of businessmodel.com, mm. that, like a lot of businesses at the time, had no model, and so collapsed. Um, and then... I came back to New York cuz I, I was living in Atlanta and I interviewed with with two people. RGA which I'd known only because I saw an exhibition on the title designs and you know was in love with the 7 titles and and, and remembered the Superman titles. And also Brian Collins who was then at the brand integration group at Ogilvy. Brian and I still joke about this. He doesn't of course remember. He doesn't interviewing remember interviewing. Uh oh, maybe he does. He pretends he does but but it was a while ago. <laughs> it was 91. And so, so there were these two jobs that I interviewed, and, you know, an RGA offered me the job first. And, you know, I'd met Bob a few times. When, he find, when I went into his office for him to actually offer me the job, he prefaced it by saying, you should know that some people don't think you have enough experience in interactive. So he put me on my place immediately. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and what was your first job there?
3: I, I was head of visual design.
1: And when Bob said that to you, what did you have a response? A sort of snarky no? I didn't response, care. You just no, were... I mean,
3: as as you pointed out, I don't take criticism or flattery too seriously. Why not? Well, I think because I had a childhood where I had to be very resourceful, and and I had to rely on my own assessment of myself. Even when you're young and you're not really sure who you are, you can't surrender yourself to. Being happy when people like you and being sad when people don't like you, because then you become ver- you lose your sense of center. And so, I think I l-
1: you've described most of the population. You yeah,
3: no, that. I mean, and no one is completely ambivalent about what people say. I'm not saying that. I, I it's not like I don't like praise or that uh, criticism can sometimes sometimes sting. But I have a good discipline at pulling it back and to asking myself the question, not someone else. I think part of my relationship with Bob was based on, on not needing great praise but also being able to be sort of clear-eyed about what Bob was good at and what I could learn from him and what I could contribute.
1: Talk about your promotions. Were they fast and furious or was it just a slow climb to vice chairman?
3: I um, I think it was pretty steady. The creative department was visual design, experience design, and copywriting. And then after head of visual design, I was the the head creative of the ECD on the Nike business, which was a very important piece of business. And it was from there that I think I became the chief creative officer.
1: You've described the ad industry as having gone from a system of copywriters and art directors to a creative partnership between stories and systems. And gone are the days of the pipe-smoking, lone ad genius like Bill Birnbach. And you say the industry as a whole Mm -hmm. hasn't kept pace, noting, I hate the laziness of an industry that is telling stories the same way it was 50 years ago. Netflix and HBO have reinvented TV in the last five years. Every teenage kid around the world is reinventing storytelling in their own voice. And yet advertising is incapable of being influenced by these far more progressive advancements of the grandeur
3: of narrative wow that's pretty harsh
1: it is harsh i'm not done (laughs) (laughs) they are so stuck in bloated metaphors and tropes of advertising it makes me break out in hives Mm. sorry to create any sort of affliction in you (laughs) (laughs) but what do you recommend be done why are we living in this sort of old prehistoric trope
3: well i think it's hard for anyone to change um the thing about the Atterit copyrighted team is that it was designed for print, um, mostly, and the and the and the seminal work that was do- that Burnback did for VW and everything was a great example of that. There's a wonderful tension between the word and the image that didn't exist before then, because before then, the creative team was a copywriter, and then they sent it downstairs and the Artrett colored it in. So that was already an in- that was an innovation that led to some really interesting work, um, and then TV became the sort of the engine of the industry, and especially for creatives, the the thing that they most wanted to work on. And I just think that the the industry became so re- self referential that they were incapable of being influenced. Uh, and especially since the advent of the web, but when when the craft because it's been so democratized and so uh, and sort of rap- changed so rapidly that in many other areas, it's just streaked ahead and sort of reinvented itself. And this advertising has not across the board, but largely been sort of stubbornly held to this article of faith that an art corporate team is the atomic team, despite the fact that we experience most of our media now through an interface. So that would suggest that maybe an experienced designer should be included. Um, uh, and, and also just the, the 30-second template, even though we see most of the video content now on a screen or in a stream, we, we're still like trying to fill out this template it has a lot to do also with the fact that creatives have ceded leadership of a lot of the agencies to um you know to business people and accountants uh, and part of that is that's way the industry is structured there are a few independent agencies that are still led by creatives and they tend to be really good but um, there's only a handful yeah that's right most have been yeah
1: Instead of the creative revolution of the 1960s, you actually believe that Silicon Valley is the better model to adhere to because of its optimism. And you've called that raging optimism. How do you define raging optimism?
3: Well, I think that you can either start from a place of sentimentality or or looking into the future. I think now is not the time to uh, not be open to change right? It's inevitable. And it's not just in the creative world, it's in the business world. You can't defend the past. So if that's true, you may as well enjoy the future. You may as well be excited by it and excited about being challenged by it. So that's why I think there's lots of things wrong with the valley. You know, it's, It can be a little bit of a monoculture and it can also be hermetically sealed from the outside, but they have a great belief in the next great thing, and also that they think systematically as opposed to what's happened in the, in the advertising agency business, which is they're still obsessed with, with narrative. And I'm not saying that narrative isn't really important. It's a very powerful tool. But it sits on top of a suite of behaviors that have been completely changed since the advent of the Internet. And, and unless you address those changes and think about the, exper- the media experiences through the filter of design… The vernacular of what you're doing is just going to get out of date, and I think that's what's happened.
1: Do you have any hope for the advertising agency that isn't looking at changing that trope of copywriter, art director? Do you think there's any chance they'll survive?
3: I think the art director, copyright team will survive as a narrative team, right? which will be one of the spokes, the hub of which will be a core team which will be changing all the time.
1: I don't know if you've been watching the recent reboot of Will and Grace, the great sitcom of the past that has been reinvigorated. And I think they're doing a really good job with it. The real interesting thing is that a great deal of the advertising in that show would be what we'd consider to be native advertising. Yeah. In that Karen and Jack are in the ads. Yeah. And it's a bit startling. To watch them on their stage and their antics and all the crazy activities they undertake and then see them driving in a Ford yeah. <laughs> you know, or yeah. whatever car it is. Interesting that I don't remember the brand of the car, but I remember <laughs> they're sitting in a car. Yeah. Um, and I'm wondering how you feel about that and if you think that type of native television advertising is where we're going.
3: Well, I, if people are watching scheduled TV, then maybe it works. If those ads are appearing in in streaming content that that is ad sponsored, then maybe. I that, mean, I DVR yeah. it, and yeah, that's, so, that's yeah. sort of where
1: they're appearing.
3: Right, and uh, you and you can't tell whether you should fast forward or not because it looks like right. content. Right, exactly, yeah. Yeah. exactly. I think there's going to be lots of experiments, and you know, the main thing to recognise is that the consumer of media is now now is not the same consumer from the 50s. I think coming out of the war there was this burgeoning consumer confidence. People had money after the austerity of the war. They wanted to spend it. And there were a few brands and a few media channels that played that game. And the game was, tell me what I should buy and I'll go out and buy it because I'm really excited about that. And so there was this sort of glossiness to advertising and it was very singular. There was just a few brands in each category and you would only see it intermittently through the media that existed. And now we're at a time where uh, we consume media constantly. The media is very different and attached to different contexts. And so I don't think we're playing the same game anymore. So when you see a, an ad like that, even you know, my seven-year-old son has decoded what that means. They, they know what it is. If it's done in the right spirit and it's playful and it's interesting, then he'll play the game. But otherwise, he'll just cut it off and, and, and you know, he won't be manipulated by media. He's the one manipulating media.
1: When somebody comes to you and says, Nick, we want something innovative, we want something that's never been done before, how do you start? How do you start something like that?
3: Well, I don't think uh, doing something that's never been done before by itself is a good idea. <laughs> Fair enough. And in fact, some the best innovations are a bridge from what people are already doing to something that they might want to do. So you have to make it recognizable. It needs to be familiar enough that there's a doorway into it it can't be so far out that people don't even know how to approach it or understand it or interact with it. So there's always this sort of balancing between the habit and the new behavior.
1: Somebody recently told me that the job now as a creative person is to somehow straddle the continuum between surprise and recognition and figure out (laughs) where on that continuum you better sort of launch from. I want to talk to you a little bit about ambition, and I have another fairly lengthy quote that I'd like to share with you that you said, the best way is the most obvious way to realize ambition. It is to just work hard. It seems obvious, but part of working hard and committing to something is being able to ride through disappointments and failures. I see people in our industry all the time who are distracted by shiny things, take the next job because it's better paying without thinking about what's going to happen in two years. I see it with young creators that do well here and then all of a sudden realize they can get 50 grand more elsewhere. All it takes is for them to get pissed off about something at work, someone says something to them where they get a bad review or a piece of work is not received like they think it should, and then they're off. There's this sort of strange impatience. It doesn't line up with ambition. It lines up with something else. Ambition is deeper, and it's a longer vision, and it's hard to do. And I find that to be the single biggest uh, Achilles heel of the millennials, the Mm -hmm. Gen Zers, who, as I have often put it, feel that life is basically... They're living in a 140-character culture where everything has to happen quickly. How do you encourage people to see the long game? How do you give them the sense that things that are really worthwhile do take time? Mm-hmm. And yet it's it's not even in anybody's best interest to go from place to place just for that extra 50 grand right. or the title change or, I mean, people seem now to get a title and then they're immediately thinking about the next title as opposed to working in that title.
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, you can only tell them what we just talked about and maybe explain the disappointments you've had and that on the other side there were achievements um the other thing that we're in this transition between a a sort of local creativity to a global creativity uh, and this democratization and access to the tools of creativity globally i think is going to mean that the pendulum will swing back because it's all very well having that sort of impatience and those opportunities you know at the tail end of of having ex- exclusive opportunities because you're in a wealthy country to a world where you're competing against some brilliant kid in Bangalore or, you know, in Manila or whatever, you can't put that genie back in the bottle. So if you want to achieve, then you're going to be up against people that maybe have a different expectation, different motivations, because they've only just been afforded the opportunity. So that, you know, so I think a, a lot of that will bring it back. And I, I actually work with a lot of young creatives that do work hard, that don't think that things should come easy. It's not a blanket statement that young people are are, are feckless and lazy and maybe there are some that aren't yeah and 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 I think RGA probably attracts a particular sort of creative um, but i'm I'm still hopeful, you know, and and the truth is that the market will sort it out. <laughs> I hate to sound like a raging libertarian, but it will
1: You've had projects that have failed, like the Ballers Network for mm. Nike. Um, how do you personally overcome the, if, if you do feel, any sort of natural fear that many would have when working on highly visible client projects that might fail or fail back on you?
3: Well, in the case of Paula's Network, which is an interesting social network before the advent of the big platforms, we learned something from it. We learned what didn't work. We learned later that actually it was, it was going to work. Uh, so was it on the verge
1: of of
3: it would have worked uh or or we would have built on top of a different platform that already had the qualities that we were trying to build from scratch in some ways you got to think of your work as a portfolio of experiments some of are high risk some of them not um and some of the high risk ones will not work but you'll learn from them but not everything we do is like that some things are more obvious than others they they're they're you might build on something that, that's already existing out there that you're pretty sure it's going to work. And then other things are more of a stretch, and you're expecting people to change their behavior a little bit too much.
1: On Quora.com, someone asked, why did the Ballers Network fail? And this was the way someone named Ben Williams mm. responded. Did Ben Williams work there?
3: Ben Williams, is uh, he's at ECD at okay. RGA. Yeah. So he's
1: still there. So this yeah. is the way he responded. It did not achieve its intended longevity goal, sadly, partly because the architect and visionary of its design was not part of its continuing evolution. It seems like it was treated like a short-term campaign rather than a growing organic tool for sincere athletes who want to train and play against one another. I helped to draft the blueprint for the Ballers Network, and I'm honored and happy to see it come to light. This is an excellent digital learning lesson, and I will always cite this example for clients moving forward. Would you agree with that assessment, and what would you cite to clients about that experience? Well, I agree
3: with the overarching point, right, which is that the agency world, and particularly on the client side, marketers, are very short-term thinkers because they think in campaigns. And campaigns generally get attention because you buy media around them, uh, and then they tail off when you buy less media or when you stop buying media. Platforms are different. They're not like a a bell curve that you pay for, they're uh, an incline that you earn. You can't buy for someone to interact with the interface. You can buy to get a video in front of someone. So you have to earn this use, and over time it accretes value because most of these networks have things called network effects. They become more valuable the more people are on it. And so, so the point that Ben's making there, which is that you, that you need to build it over time, it needs to it's not a short-term investment, that it will become more valuable over time. Narrative is an interesting contrast to that. When you, when you see a video or read a story, it's based on a collection of revealed moments. Once those moments are revealed, it's very powerful when they're revealed, but they're but once they're revealed once, they lose their power. So you can only watch a narrative or video a certain amount of times unless you're obsessed with Gone with the Wind or something before it just loses its its power. The most powerful narrative is the first time you saw it. And systems like these platforms are the opposite. They become more valuable over time. The more you use it, the more people are connected to it. And so you have a very different dynamic there. Most marketing departments aren't built on this idea of platforms. They're built on this idea of campaigns. So I would argue that the success of something like that is probably not going to be led by a marketing client. It'll probably be led by a product client or, you know, or, or a technical client or you know, a business client because they have the expertise now how to manage a product as opposed to release a campaign.
1: You've stated to always start from a place of truth— And that might seem obvious, but every strategy you see is a lie.
3: Well, not every strategy.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm just quoting (laughs) you. But let's say some of the strategies. So so what makes, what strategies, you don't have to specifically say unless you want to, which strategies or kind of strategies do you see that are lies? And why are there so many strategies that are lies?
3: I think because a lot of our clients create myths around what their brand is. They're 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 like brand moonies, um, and often this is this is a result of them being uh, sort of sealed off from the earth. They could be on a campus, you know, uh, or you know, so so they sort of face each other and talk to each other about their brand. They might think, for example, that that their brand stands for something because that's what they've been talking about in their boardroom. But if but it wouldn't take much to realize that that doesn't stand for that and then agencies will sort of pile on and and burnish that and i i just think that it's the biggest mistake that happens i've got this four step from thinking to making touch thing yeah and so it's it's like you go from truth to relevance to interesting to clear so the first two are strategy right is it true right and out of all those things that are true about your company, what's relevant? What would people care about? That's strategy. And, um, and from a creative point of view, it's got to be interesting. And it's interesting either because it's useful or it's entertaining or whatever. And it's got to be clear what is it trying to say. You can enjoy a piece of communications or a piece of design and not understand. Or you can understand something and think it's boring. So that's what you need to straddle there. But in, if you don't start from a place of truth, then that whole string of contingencies sort of unravel.
1: But don't don't there need to be exercises before you get to that what that truth is? You that's don't right. just start at truth. Yeah,
3: yeah, that's right. Yeah, but but uh, but there's often confirmation bias there. Yeah. I mean, right. most
1: of the time when I've met with clients, it's their, their truth is so internally driven that it's yeah. not interesting or relevant or clear. It's just mm. internally driven and everybody nods.
3: But hey, you... well, It could also be an internal truth that no one else knows about, mm. that they don't think that is important, that it might be important. So it, the truth can come from anywhere, but it needs to be true. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I guess so. It's just so hard to find it and... Create consensus around that in a yeah. way that feels sincere, and yeah, not, and yeah. Not well, the consent, or, especially or if it's cons- if
3: it's consensus-driven, you end up with those those mission statements that you see on the walls of all these big corporations, and it's like they're like fridge magnets: right. integrity, transparency, whatever and it can leadership. Can apply to any company anywhere and it, yeah, in the it could world. Be anything, yeah.
1: You recently made a big change in your life. You have taken a new position. You made waves by announcing that you were leaving RGA after 17 years to join Publicis Mm -hmm. as the global CCO of Publicis Group and president of Publicis Communications, which you're starting in several months in 2016, you told Adweek upon your promotion to vice chairman at RGA that you were looking forward to the next 15 years at yeah. RGA. So first, congratulations. Thank Second, you. what made you decide to ultimately accept this this new gig? It's a pretty big deal.
3: Uh, the, the decision was not based on anything that I wasn't enjoying at RGA. I still love RGA and you know would have been happy to continue. It is a very different job it's a job that has a different view of the industry has a scale that is very different from RGA and and has to face the problems of industry head on and and i go back to what i was saying before is is i do think that these holding companies need creative people at that level yeah that have positions of of power you know that can help make decisions with with a team and so that was what intrigued me
1: I mean, you've said that more smart creative people should be thinking about running agencies as opposed to just being the creative guy that turns up late in a T shirt. Mm-hmm. Not that I could imagine you doing that, <laughs> but you really are now being put in a position where you can not only transform one of the largest holding groups in the in the world, but really change the industry.
3: Well, if you think that creativity can help business, then you need to take business seriously. And I you know, and the advertising industry, but it's true of most creative industries. They've, they set up structures that infantilize their creatives. You know, in the case of, of the advertising industry, the, the award shows are uh, important because you get recognition from your peers, but you, you shouldn't use, distract them from the fact that we are trying to help our clients make money. That's what we're doing. Yeah. It's no less noble than Renaissance Art in Italy, which was sponsored by the church and the Medici's. I mean, there's always a sponsor for art. Um, and and in many cases I think the greatest canvas now is sponsored by the big corporations and so you need to understand that and not be so disconnected from what your creativity is driving that it becomes a sort of personal pursuit it's not it's a collective pursuit and we and and creative people need to understand how it contributes to business um, for themselves and for their clients uh, and anything less than that I think is a, as I say it just you become an infant
1: But in being a creative person that is leading an agency, you not only have to think about the creative and the staff, you also have to think about the margin and about Mm -hmm. billing and about collection and so forth. Is that something that you find interesting?
3: Yeah. Well, and I also see the relationship between those things. You know, one of the things that I learned from Bob is that they aren't mutually exclusive. If you do good work, then you get paid well you don't want to get into that sort of spiral of of just worrying about the money and letting the works degrade so much that it becomes a commodity and then your margins become smaller and then you, know, you go down so That's there is a shame is, spiral <laughs> yeah I mean, and you know and and smart create creative work is not just work that appeals to you it's a work that works you know out in the world and and creativity is really hard to create in a mechanical way so right now humans are still the best way to get to that.
1: You've told the Webby Awards that when it comes to what you're most excited about for the future, um, it's VR and AR, uh, and specifically how heads-up displays will change the way we interact with the world. Is that something you're looking to pursue
3: in your new position? Oh, I think everyone will be pursuing this.
1: When we talk about AR, we're talking about augmented reality.
3: Yeah, that's right. Uh, And AR as opposed to VR is a more sealed off from the world experience. You can be connected to other people through VR, of course. There can be a social layer to that, but you are physically transported, whereas AR actually superimposes things on the real world, helps you informs you about the I just think the applications for that are broader. they're not just about entertainment, they're practical, they're about learning, they're about understanding things or so so I, there isn't a brand in the world that that doesn't need to demonstrate something or you know or help you do a task. so I can just see the application being broad
1: in your 17 years at RGA, what are you most proud of?
3: Well, I, I'm, I'm proud of creating an organizing principle around creativity that, was, that is inclusive, but also respected what I think of as the two hemispheres of a creative brain. You know, I talk about it as stories and systems, but basically it's creativity through time, which is storytelling, and creativity in space, which is design systematic thinking. And those two things need to work together. In the way, I think that Burnback wanted art and copy to work together, but he did that in the service of a narrative craft. I think this is a large organizing principle. And, and we didn't just talk about it as a philosophy. We, we were very practical about it, and we structured our creative teams around that. So How did, how did you do that? Well, so the, the people that run the groups and the offices, they tend to be two people, a systematic thinker and and a narrative thinker. So in the case of New York, Chloe Gottlieb is background is experience design. She's a systematic thinker. She's a creative designer, systematic thinker. And Taris Weiner is a copywriter. So he's a he's a narrative thinker. When they work together, and this is not about divide and conquering, it's not about Chloe looking after interface design and and Taris looking after TV. It's about them working together because what happens is something similar to what I think Burnback wanted to happen between art and copy, is that they work with each other. They're symbiotic. If I'm Chloe and I'm used to designing interfaces, what Taurus can add to that is, as a narrative thinker, he's he's a subtractive thinker, because it comes down to these revealed moments. And so he understands uh, how to present a brand in a really simple, coherent way. And often interface designers suffer from feature creep, and they create these sort of sprawling interfaces that don't ladder up to a brand feeling. They just add more, right? Because they tend to be additive. And on the other, in the other direction, I think Taurus learns that the function of storytelling in that world is not just to make you feel something, but make you understand something. In some cases, demonstrates something, something that maybe we have already built, a behavior or a service that the experience designer has built. And so, narrative leads more to action as opposed to just just feeling, which is why metaphors become less relevant metaphors are good at making you feel something but not very good at making you understand a product or understanding what to do so the influence of those two and we and we have that model office by office ahead of you know a, a systematic thinker working with a narrative thinker as a as a leadership team and as a sort of organizing principle of how we should be creative it's like a lateralized brain these two hemispheres working together and then underneath that you can then curate teams that are specific to the task. It could be an architect copywriter, but it also could be um, an experienced designer and a visual designer. It could be an animator and a data scientist. It could be whatever exotic talent you might want to put against that problem. And of course, that equals innovation because innovation does not come from the same data sets being put together over and over again. It comes from different people with different backgrounds working together to try to solve a problem that have enough literacy between them that they can communicate and try to solve problems but have divergent enough capabilities that canvas that they're working on is broader and you can mix and match things in a more interesting way.
1: I have one last question for you. I know it's hard to predict one's future, but what do you imagine will be the first thing you explore at Publicis in your new role?
3: Well, since, you know, this is a design podcast, and I and I believe the design is the foundation of all of this, and I came from design. I think it's uh, to look at the design of the company, because from what I can tell, all of these holding companies have got amazing assets and very talented people. How you put them together, combine them, uh, and sort of design the organization is a discipline that I think we're all going to be working on in the next few years.
1: Do you see the long-term success of the holding company model, or is that something you also want to shake up?
3: Oh, I think not only do I want to shake it up, I think that, uh, you know, Artur at, at Publicis wants to. But, you know, I, I obviously that's what RJ's been doing at a different scale, but in a, in a very pure way for a long time. So, um, you know, I don't think you want to shake things up just for the sake of it. I think shaking things up comes from looking at the world in a clear way and not looking at the world as someone who's a practitioner in a particular industry. Because these in, the borders between all of these industries and these capabilities and these disciplines are blurred to such an extent that you have to step back and stop thinking about the way that they've been done. You've got to start thinking about the possibilities, and that's interesting and exciting. And, and so as long as the holding companies keep that in mind, and I think they've got a good chance. They have the talent. That's the thing. It's a, there's no other organisations in the world that have such a bunch of freaks <laughs> that are making money, uh, you know, and have a livelihood. You certainly won't find those sort of people in other corporations, you know, either on the client side or in the consultancies or in some, you know, advertising agencies and design companies and creative companies have always been a great place for people like me that have not much of a formal education and was raised by wolves. (laughs)
1: Well, peace be with you. (laughs) Nick, thank you so much for creating such groundbreaking work and pushing our industry forward. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters.
3: Thank you very much.
1: This is the 14th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
2: For more information about design matters, or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our new Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash Debbie-Millman. That's d.rip slash Debbie-Millman. If you want others to know about this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded live at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiland. Generous support for Design Matters Media is provided by Wix.com.